Welcome back to the Garden Weekly Bible Study on the Book of Hebrews. My name is Joel Fisher. I'm a defender of Christianity and a student of Scripture. I'm here to help you go deeper in your faith by walking through Scripture with you. Today we're looking at Hebrews chapter 1 verses 7 through 14. Um, So we are looking at angels, not angels are servants, not inheritors today. We're going to be finishing Hebrews chapter 1 with this study. So the author has been showing and will be continuing to show through quotations of the Hebrew scriptures that the son that they are talking about that he introduced in uh, verse 1 and 2 is greater than the angels and is the inheritor of all creation. In this passage, the author is talking about how angels are servants. But the Son is the eternal creator who is worthy of being served. The Son will receive the throne over all creation, while angels will serve those who will rule alongside the Son. All right, so now let's dive into the study, starting with verse 7. Another quotation. Of the angels, he says, quote, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This quotes Psalm 104, verse 4. Psalm 104 is a poem of praise to the creator and sustainer of the universe. God is the magnificent, glorious, and all-powerful one who gives what is good to the righteous and will punish the wicked. In the midst of this song of praise to God as the one who is greater than all, we have this quote. And this quote used to confuse me until I did some more extensive study into it, and I think it's really fascinating. So God's angels slash messengers, the word in both Hebrew and in Greek, means both. Uh, messengers are, uh, God's messengers are spiritual beings who serve him and do his bidding by carrying messages to humanity and things like that. So his angels slash messengers are winds, and his ministers or servants or worshipers are fiery flames. Now, wind and fire are two very common ways that God revealed himself in the Old Testament. In Exodus 3, 1 and 2, it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he, Moses, led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, which also happens to be Sinai. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. Angel of the Lord in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. can also look at... Exodus 13.21, to see winds, um, the pillar of fire and cloud that led the Israelites in the wilderness. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they may travel by day and night. So again, this is God revealing himself through wind or cloud and fire. Exodus 14, 21, 
Moses stretched his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. Of course, this is talking about the uh, Israelites passing through the Red Sea um, miraculously. So we have the strong east wind. Um, I don't have the quotes here, but you could also, of course, think of in Genesis 1 when the spirit slash wind of God is hovering over the waters and in many other places, the wind and fire of God is a revelation to of God to people. So this psalm connects these works of God. Go back to the psalm. So this psalm connects these works of God to the activity of his servants. He, the Lord, God, makes the clouds his chariot, he rides on the wings of the winds he of the wind, he makes his messengers winds and his ministers flaming fire. The way that he talks to humanity, the way that he um, reveals himself to humanity is often through wind and fire, and that is the connection with God's revealing using angels, messengers, to to speak to humanity. Um, you think of how, and we'll see this in a later um, in a later video, probably the next week or two, where God um, uses angels to deliver the law to Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. There are two names for the same mountain. So there are times where it says that God revealed the law to Moses, and then there are also times where it seems to say that God used angels to reveal the law to Moses. Angels doing God's will are synonymous with God himself doing something. And this isn't a contradiction. This is just simply... Um, you could think of how if the press secretary for America's president or, you know, any other president says something, oftentimes news networks will say the president said today X, Y, and Z. Even though it wasn't literally out of the president's mouth, the press secretary speaks with the authority of and permission of the president and in this way, when God sends messengers, angels, to do his bidding as winds or as fire, um, it is synonymous with God doing it himself. So the author of Hebrews is drawing upon this verse to show how angels, as great and glorious as they are, being flaming fire, being winds, they're just servants. They're still servants. They served God in his works of salvation for Israel and for all of God's people. They are not inheriting the great future hope that we have as the bride of Christ. And we'll see this as we come to verse 14. So now we move forward to verses 8 through 12. And we're going to start in verses 8 and 9. These are two separate quotes, but they have the same point, that the Son is eternal. And we see that through the introduction that the author gives us, where he says, um, the author says, but of the son, he says. 
that son, of course, is the son that he has been discussing why he is greater than the angels. So now he is applying whatever is going to come next directly to the son, just as he applied verse um, seven directly to angels. Of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The first quote here that we've been looking at is from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Now, Psalm 45 is a royal wedding song. I'm not going to look at the whole thing. You can look at it and read it yourself. It's a royal wedding song in which the king seems to be referred to as God. Your throne, and that's this part right here, your throne, O God. It's directly in this quote. So the king of Israel is God's chosen representative to lead his people. Like angels are God's chosen representative to deliver messages and carry out his will for mankind. So the king is in a similar way representative of God in leading God's chosen human people of Israel. The king did not sit on his own throne. He sat on God's throne. You can see this in this quote from 1 Chronicles 28 verse 5. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, this is David speaking, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. So whose throne is it? The throne is the Lord's, the throne of the kingdom of the Lord. So as God's chosen representative, Solomon represents God in sitting on the throne over Israel. But the throne really is God's throne. And we talked about this in the last session uh, when we were talking about 2 Samuel. So as God's chosen, he, uh, this king, the king of Israel, is meant to execute God's will for his people and to lead them in righteousness. The kings were human, and even the greatest among them, David, failed to perfectly execute righteousness in, ju in judgment, but the point is that despite their failings, they represent God. So this, oh God, is a uh, is a phrase of representation for the king of Israel as sitting on God's throne. So the author of Hebrews, though, takes this in a new sense, um, in a ultimate completion, true sense. He sees the type and shadow of the king of Israel representing God on the throne and then applies it to the ultimate Davidic king. And again, look at that study on 2 Samuel for more about that. He takes this with a messianic expectation that the one who would bring true justice, the one who would truly love righteousness and truly hate wickedness perfectly without fail, the true king of Israel, the one who fulfills the law and the prophets, that's who this is ultimately about. What is written in this poem is the standard to which every earthly king failed. But as we saw in the second Samuel study, 
God himself guaranteed that a son of David would bring God's people true rest in a true kingdom. The author of Hebrews shows us that to fulfill this psalm, the one who brings true justice and righteousness is not merely God's representative, and so can be called God in a metaphorical sense. The son is God. Only God himself could truly meet the standard. So God became flesh, as we'll see in Hebrews 2, chapter 2. The second quote builds on the first line of the first quote. So if that God in that line, I'm going to just highlight this, go back here to verses 8 and 9, is forever and ever. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So that's what the author of Hebrews is building on here in verses 10 through 12 of Hebrews 1. If God in that line is the Son, and the Son fulfills the passage, then his throne is forever and ever, must not merely be metaphorical or representative. We saw in our study of 2 Samuel 7 that the throne of David is eternal, yet king, earthly kings failed, and the line of Davidic kings ended when Jerusalem was sacked and burned. We saw that the fulfillment of David's eternal throne is a true son who fulfills all hopes and expectations. So the second passage builds on the eternal throne of this son by proclaiming that this son is not only eternal into the future, but eternal into the past as well. In our study of Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, we saw that the son was intimately involved in the creation of all things and therefore could not be created himself. The author of Hebrews draws this implication out more explicitly with this quote of Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. So if we look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, just for a moment, you'll see that he was the agent of creation. And here in Hebrews chapter 1, you, Lord... Right, we're talking about the son based on what um what the author said in verse eight of the son, he says, so now we go to verse ten where we have that and you Lord, so we're still talking about the son, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, which if we compare to Hebrews one two, through whom God created the world. And the heavens now are also the work of your hands, right? So it's not just the world cannot just be the what we think of as the world, the earth, planet earth. It cannot just be that. It has to also be all of creation, the entire cosmos, the world, the universe, including the spiritual heavens where God resides, are the work of the hands of the sun, according to the author of Hebrews. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, You will, like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, and we're going to look at that in more detail in a moment. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So from verse 10 there, we can see that the sun has an eternal past. He laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of his hands. That means that he was before creation. And from the last part of verse 12, we can see you are the same and your years will have no end. He has an eternal future. 
Well, who do we know that has an eternal past and an eternal future? Only God. No created being could have this. So this Psalm 102, which we are also not going to look at. Again, take a look at it yourself if you're looking for more detail there. It was directed at God. So this quotation is another direct statement of equation between God and the Son. If you read the poem, it's clearly talking about God. In the New Testament, Jesus is often called Lord, while the Father is referred to as God, quote-unquote. This does not deny the deity of Jesus. In fact, it's the opposite. In the Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, the translation for the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh, W, or I'm sorry, Y-H-W-H, is Kyrios, or in English, Lord. By calling Jesus Kyrios, which they do in the New Testament, these New Testament authors are identifying Jesus with the most sacred name of God, and I've already highlighted it here. So, in the Old Testament Hebrew, this is Yahweh. In the Old Testament Greek, this is Kyrios, and that is in the New Testament, Kyrios equals Jesus. So the author is taking advantage of the Greek rendering of the name of God, Yahweh, to take the Lord, Jesus, and transpose those onto God. Yahweh is Jesus. Yahweh is also the Father. The Father and the Son are not the same, but they are both God. They are one being. They are one essence in nature. And as we saw, not only the earth, but also the heavens, the dwelling place of God and his angelic servants were created through the participation of the Son. So this passage emphasizes the changelessness of the Son despite the changing of creation, right? So here, creation changes. This is possible because the sun was not created. The sun will never change. The sun is not like creation. He is not a work of the hand of God. All creation will change and indeed perish. The author of Hebrews will spend a lot of time in chapters 9 and 10, which we should get to eventually, talking about the coming day of the Lord. At that time, the sun will be revealed in his glory, and we will be changed to be like him glorified. You can see here in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 to 24, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. In Christ, all shall be made alive. Christ the firstfruits, Christ who had a new body, a glorified body after his resurrection, and yet we will be changed to be just like him at the coming of those who belong to Christ, at his coming, when he comes again. 
creation itself, we'll see in Romans 8 verses 19 to 23, will be changed and glorified as well. Creation was subjected to futility in the hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Redemption doesn't just mean coming back to the state that we're currently at, as if when we grow old and die and then we're resurrected, we become like a 25-year-old again. No, this redemption is to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. And creation itself is seeking that change, that redemption, along with the children, after being subjected to futility because God subjected it to that because of the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. So this quotation, like so many others, will prove not only prove the author's point that the Son is greater than angels, but it anticipates his topics that he'll take up in later chapters. Finally, we come to verses 13 and 14. Angels will not inherit, but we will. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So this is, in verse 13, the last of seven quotes that the author of Hebrews gets gives to support his argument that this is no ordinary son of God, a spirit, an ordinary created spiritual being, but this is the unique son of God. This son is no servant. He is the heir, the inheritor, truly God and yet not the father, which we can see in verse three of uh, Hebrews here. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And if you keep going, you'll see the um, the comparison with the Father, how he is the very stamp of the Father's nature. So he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which, of course, the author is connecting right here with this quote of Psalm 110, verse 1. So as I said, this is quote number 7. And seven is a number of perfection in scripture because the Hebrew word for seven and the Hebrew word for fullness or completion have the same consonants. They're homonyms, in other words. Um, so seven, as like I said, it's the number of perfection, the number of completion, the number of creation. And the author very intentionally uses seven quotes to explain the son's superiority to angelic beings. The Son is the fullness, the fulfillment, the goal of the law and the prophets. He is the perfection to the angel's servitude. So this quote is from Psalm 10, Psalm 110, verse 1, and it's the mo- which is the most quoted passage in the New Testament. And like I said, it echoes verse 3 there. Jesus himself uses this passage, this quote, Psalm 110, in Mark 12, 36, where he says, 
uh, he's talking, he's teaching in the temple and he said, how can the scribe, he's talking to the Pharisees, how can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Jesus also, of course, echoes this in Mark fourteen sixty two, where he is defending himself before the Sanhedrin on trial, and he claims that he will be sitting at the right hand of the Most High. He is claiming the exalted status of the Son of Man, the true human one, God in flesh. So Jesus' observation here in Mark 12 is fascinating. It's a psalm of David, yet it begins with Yahweh, the Lord, saying to David's Lord. How can the Messiah be a descendant of David, yet also his Lord? What Yahweh says to this Lord is also fascinating, and and it echoes Daniel 7. This Lord is invited to take his seat at the right hand of the Father in the divine throne room. Sit in divine throne room. This Lord is being given co-rulership of creation alongside the Father. All of creation is being given to the Son. And yet, while the Son is enthroned, he also needs to wait for the full consummation of his rulership. All things are not yet seen as his, even though they are now his by right. The Son is told to rest. His work is done for now. His enemies, the principalities and powers of the heavens, and death itself, and those in rebellion to the Son's lordship, will be made the Son's footstools. This is representative of total defeat and humiliation. Which brings us to the last verse of Hebrews chapter 1. It summarizes what the author has been arguing with his seven quotations in verses 5 through 13. Angelic beings are ministering spirits. As we saw when we were looking at verse 7, ministering means something like serving in a priestly role. Or a liturgical role. Angelic beings' purpose is to help and serve God's purposes in bringing mankind to salvation. Every rank, from the messengers to the throne guardians to the sons of God who serve on the divine council, serve in order to accomplish God's salvific purposes for mankind in creation. Humanity was given rulership of the land, the sea, the skies, and everything in them. Genesis 1.26 Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, that's water, and over the birds of the sky, that's clouds, and over the livestock and over everything that creeps on the earth, that's earth. Sea, sky, and land are all meant to be under human rulership, and we lost that rulership. Everything 
from the sea to the sky to the land, was meant to be under human rulership. But we lost that rulership because of our own sins. Jesus, as truly God and man, has not only reclaimed it, but he's given the right for all who are in him, who have placed their trust in him and have become his people, to rule alongside him. The phrasing of inherit salvation may sound odd, but when you think of it in terms of us being adopted into sonship and inheritance alongside Jesus, then it becomes easier to understand. And we can look at Romans 8, verse 14 through 17. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That is the most one of the most central and important passages in all of Scripture. Salvation is not merely a past event, nor merely a present event. All creation will be rescued from its current state. We will be glorified and live in a renewed creation. That is what it means to inherit salvation. That is our future. So what have we learned in this lesson? Number one, angels are ministering servants. They're important, they're powerful, but they are servants here to serve for our sakes, not to serve us, to serve God, but for our sakes that we can receive salvation. Number two, Jesus is the eternal creator and inheritor. From him and to him and through him are all things, as Paul writes in Romans. He was there at creation because he was not created. And he became man so that he could inherit what was given to us by right in Genesis 1. He did what we failed to do. He passed every test. And in him, we can be clothed with his righteousness. Number three, God's people inherit through their union to Jesus and adoption into his family. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We don't inherit because of our own merit. We cannot merit salvation. We inherit when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in his perfect life, in his humility to die for us. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we become united to him. We are in him and we are adopted into the family of God as brothers and sisters alongside Christ, to be inheritors of all creation. That is our future, and it is fixed and immutable, and nothing can take it away. Thank you for being here with me today. Thank you for studying through Hebrews with me. We've made it through Hebrews 1. We are going to keep going into Hebrews 2. The Garden Weekly is a weekly newsletter and ministry that is helping you to find Christian videos, podcasts, and articles that will deepen your understanding of Scripture God and the world around us. 
If you'd like to subscribe to the newsletter, you can go to thegardenweekly.com. The link will be in the description. If you enjoyed this video, please hit the thumbs up, subscribe, the bell. If you're listening to this on podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes. We would really appreciate it. Thank you all, and I will see you next week. God bless you.